Well, if I didn't introduce myself, I'm Johnny, uh, and it's, it's a joy to be with you this morning. It is a particular joy, because as I discovered during the service, the evening service last week, it's actually our, as a church, it's our fifth anniversary this morning, which is amazing. Uh, And I don't say that to celebrate who we are or what we've done. Um, this has been an amazing thing, just seeing God at work. And it is a, for me, it's a snapshot moment, one of those moments that you just, you know, want to take a picture in your mind this morning of uh, just to see you guys gathered, and many of you I know gathered here to celebrate some folks who are going to be baptized uh, this morning. And what's going to happen is I'm going to speak for a, a few moments, and, and by a few moments, just read anywhere between sort of five and 35 minutes. No, it shouldn't be that long. Don't worry. Don't fear not. Uh, and then after that, we're going to uh, share together in baptism and hear just what God's been doing in the life of a few individuals within our community. So that's very exciting uh, today. And I get quite zealous at times, so I warn you about that in advance if you are visiting us. And I'm hoping I don't get too, too zealous because I'd hate to end up either on the cross or in the pool uh, this morning. But I do want to begin by telling you about the happiest day of my life. The happiest day in my life, I can measure it, it was on Sunday, 13th of May, 2012. We were on a family holiday, and uh, I was sitting in a bar, a small bar in a small town in Spain. I couldn't exactly remember what the town was. I couldn't tell you, it wasn't really important, but I was there to witness a very important occasion, and that occasion was the final weekend of the Premier League. And I was there to watch a football match, a very important football match. It was Man City versus Queen's Park Rangers. Now, some of you immediately are with me in spirit. You're remembering the day. You know where you were. You know what you were doing. But many of you are already feeling the barriers rising up. But just hear me out. It was a deciding fixture of the Premier League season. And Manchester City were playing Queen's Park Rangers. And all they had to do was win the game. And then they would take the title, the first title they had won for 44 years, folks. And uh, they were 1-0 up before half time. a lovely Pablo Zabaleta goal, a bit lucky, but there we go. Then they conceded one just after halftime and then another. And by this point, their rivals for the, for the title, Manchester United, serial winners, Manchester United were winning. And so City were in dire trouble. We needed two goals from nowhere to overcome our bitter rivals. I need to tell you some context here, friends. The context here is that I became a Manchester City fan when some unsuspecting idiot took me to see them when I was only seven years of age. We'd just moved to Manchester, and I went to see them defeat Coventry City in a dour 2-0 affair. And I'd supported them since then, and what that meant for me was mediocrity. In fact, it meant perpetual suffering. I'd seen them relegated on two occasions. It was painful. And City fans came up with a phrase to articulate the pain, the, the ability to, that this club had to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. The same, I, I, dare, I dare say today, the same ability that our own Nottingham Forest has. Typical City. Typical city, that's the phrase. And on this day, well, what happened after that, I should say, is we were bought by a very wealthy nation state. And success was promised and it began to be delivered. And it looked like we'd left all this failure behind. And then on the last day of the season, there it was again, staring us in the face. And as I was sitting in the bar in Spain, two words came to my mind. Behave. 
typical city. But then, 90 plus two minutes, Ed and Jacko scores, headed goal from a corner. It looked like the, ut- the utmost and the, the worst twist of fate. We were going to draw the game and lose the title. But then, no, the ball was pumped forward. Balotelli somehow at the edge of the box. It's got the ball to Sergio Aguero. Aguero! He finished. And the victory was won. You could say it was a resurrection of sorts. Here we were back from the dead, and I lost myself. I don't know what happened, but it was almost as if the the small bar I was in couldn't contain the joy I felt. I could hear a voice, a noise, a wailing, a screaming from far off, and after a while, I discovered that that wailing was my own voice. Uh, I left the bar. I found three people outside the bar who'd been watching the game, and they were jumping up and down, and so I assumed they were also Man City fans. I embraced each of them. There was an older man, an older lady, and a younger woman. I kissed at least one of them. (laughs) Here's a picture of me in celebration. (laughs) This was the sweetest victory I have ever witnessed. (laughs) And it filled me with joy, and it was that story that came to mind as I was preparing this sermon on the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. But when the disciples approached the tomb of Jesus, it wasn't victory that was in their mind. They weren't thinking about elation. They weren't thinking about defeating their enemies. They were thinking about defeat. This is what we read in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away, wondering to himself what had happened. The disciples arrived. These women arrive at the tomb, and what's in their minds is not victory, but defeat. They've just witnessed the death the savage and brutal death of their friend, Jesus. And in fact, they had hoped he was more than a friend. They had hoped he was a savior. They had hoped he was a king, not just their king, but the king of all Israel, the king of all the world. If you like, and if <laughs> it's not too much to extend the metaphor, they'd been league winners in waiting. And all of that had been cruelly snatched away from them at the death. Pun intended. Jesus has said this would be the way it would be. He predicted his own death, but because there was no box in which that fit for them, 
They couldn't understand it. Those words passed over their heads. And so when Jesus was crucified, as he was on that first good Friday, they assumed what anyone would assume when faced with that data, that information. They assumed that Jesus had been defeated and the whole story had ended. And it's no surprise that that would be their response. As we've been seeing over the last weeks at Trinity, the cross was a method of execution designed not just to kill, but far more efficient ways to go about killing somebody. It was designed as a, a spectacle of public humiliation. It was designed to dehumanize. The person who was crucified, the whole point was that they would be degraded to the point that they would no longer even appear to be human. It was so barbaric and inhumane that Christians didn't even begin to depict the crucifixion in their own art for centuries afterward. And so as the disciples attend the, the tomb, as they attend the tomb, they're assuming they've lost. And that's why they go carrying spices. Now, some of you smell lovely this morning, I have to say. The aroma is rising up as the heat comes down. And your pulse points, it's paying off. But these spices weren't there just to make a nice smell. They were to cover the smell of decomposing flesh. They're a symbol of defeat. Do you see that? That's what the spices are for. And they get there to the tomb and the key pieces of information, key pieces of information is they don't need them. The tomb was found empty. Instead, what we have is a tremendous victory. Here's what we read. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. This group of faithful women arrive at the tomb, and it appears like somebody's already been there. Somebody's rolled the stone away, removed the body, taken it elsewhere. It would have been practically impossible to do so. They arrive there at dawn, it says in the text. At 6 a.m., that's when it goes light in that part of the earth at this time of the year. It wouldn't have been possible to be there. And so they're wondering what's going on. Naturally, they're wondering. Some translations say they're perplexed. They're perplexed. (laughs) I love that word. In the original language, it's a negative form of the word to travel. Literally, it means that they couldn't travel it. Couldn't travel it in their minds. They couldn't fathom it. They couldn't capture it or grasp it. They just couldn't, we would say, they couldn't get there when they arrive at the tomb. And as they're attempting to get there, to gather it, to fathom it, to travel it, two men appear in dazzling clothes, these angels, and they give a message. Completely unexpected, and here it is. He is not here. He has risen. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. How could they possibly begin to grasp this? Empty tombs. Goals in overtime. Angels in sparkling clothes. And then the claim that a dead man has been raised. It didn't make any sense. They had to ask the question, eventually at least, what, how does this fit with everything we've seen so far? How does it fit with the death of our Lord and friend just two, year, two days earlier? And that's the question we've been asking over the last few weeks at Trinity. We've been looking at the cross, and if you've missed it, by way of recovery or by way of 
introduction. We've been saying that the message of the cross is the heart of the Christian faith. That's why we've given you a cross this morning. But it is a message which makes no sense to religious people. It's not a religious message. But nor does it make sense to the irreligious. We've seen that on the cross, God is dealing with the fundamental problem in the world, which isn't simply the rising cost of energy. It isn't simply the climate crisis. It isn't simply war. It isn't simply racial inequality or social inequality. It is all these things, but fundamentally it is sin and death from which all of these other problems arise. And we've seen that he's been dealing with that, focusing on that in the strangest way, by absorbing it, by taking all of that upon himself. And we've seen that that is described, that victory is described in various ways in the Bible. In one way, there's an exodus, a new exodus, a, a liberation from slavery. That's the first picture. The second picture is a ransom, a, a payment given, a deliverance at cost for your liberation. The third image is a, a substitution, again, a football word there, that Jesus dies in our place. He dies the death we deserve so that we could have the life that he deserved. And we've seen it described last week as a victory. That on the cross, Jesus triumphs. He is the victor, winning in the strangest of ways. That's the message of the cross. And for Christians throughout the ages, the message has been that God is indeed victorious over every enemy in his good creation. He stares them all down and he triumphs over them by absorbing the sting on the cross. And that's a stunning reversal of everything anyone ever imagined to be true about the cross. How could this barbaric torture method be anything other than a humiliating defeat at the hands of the most powerful state in history to that point? Well, the answer is the resurrection of Jesus. You were wondering, why is he preaching a sermon on the cross? Does he not know it's Easter Sunday? Well, the resurrection fits here. Leslie Newbegin, who has the best name in the world and was a thinker of the last generation, he once said, the resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the vindication, the manifestation, sorry, of a victory. Or in my words, the resurrection is not a defeat reversed, but a victory verified. What is happening in the empty tomb is God is, is not looking at Jesus and saying, well, you lost on the cross, but I love you so much, I'm just going to raise you from the dead anyway, give you another chance at life, bail you out. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is something more significant about the cross. It says this worked. Evil and sin and death really were conquered in that moment. And the resurrection, the empty tomb says life is now available. As we pass through the cross, we, we emerge, if you like, as God's people on the other side in the empty tomb with life before us. Possibility and freedom before us. What he did for Jesus, he will do for each of us. This was God's victory. But on Easter morning, the first Easter morning at least, I don't know how you feel right now, whether I'm doing a good job or not, but on the first Easter morning, that was too much to compute for those disciples. And so they were, to, to coin a phrase, discombobulated. They were overwhelmed by this strange victory. 
So what can we say as I come into land about this strange victory this morning? The first thing we just have to say is that this kind of victory, this kind of God, this kind of activity, it's not the stuff that's in religious textbooks of the day. No one expects God to behave in this way. It's utterly unexpected. It's unexpected, a death and a resurrection of a God, because it's utterly inconceivable. It is inconceivable. Let's not kid ourselves that the resurrection of Jesus was just the kind of thing people believed back then. Along with the the earth being a a square, sorry folks, if this is news, it's round. (laughs) You know, as if folks were just a little bit more gullible back then and before they'd heard of Steve Jobs and Richard Dawkins. You know, the idea of somebody being raised to, to, to life after a crucifixion was just impossible to fathom back then as it is now. When people died, even good and holy people, they stayed dead, very dead. This isn't something you would make up. And for us too, the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus usually arrive for us, an understanding, an appreciation, a, a taking in, an acceptance, if you like, of that message often arrives in an unexpected way. On a, a smoking hot Easter morning in a church that we've never been to before, perhaps, we find this message creeping up on us sometimes unawares. Sometimes we're even surprised by it. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, among other things, says this about his own conversion. You must picture me alone. In that room at Magdalen, which is a college, University of Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. The resurrection is utterly surprising. Secondly, it is a new dawn. The women arrive at the tomb very early in the morning. I love that detail. Because what it suggests to us is that the resurrection took place in the dark of night. And there was no night darker than the night in which the Son of God lay dead in his tomb. God's own Son, dead, overwhelmed, it seems, by the violence in the earth. And yet that moment, and just that moment, was the moment at which God chose to raise his son from the dead in the most stunning act of victory and deliverance ever conceived. Shocking, surprising, but it is a new dawn. And so the resurrection of Jesus shows us, each and every one of us, this Easter morning, that the night will not last. However dark, a new dawn always follows the darkest Night, And this is good news for those in the valley of suffering now as it was then. The power is unleashed and is available today. It means death and suffering will not have the last word. That God is working in the night to bring about a new beginning. What he has done with the body of Jesus, so he will do in every place and for every person who calls on his name. He is making all things new. Thirdly, This message is radically relevant. Now, the victory 
manifested in Sergio's goal, was relevant for some in the room. Not as many as I'd like, but some. But not so the resurrection of Christ. These disciples may not yet understand it, but this message has relevance for their lives. In fact, they are going to have to reorient their everyday lives in response to this message. Their plans for their lives, their understanding of God, their relationships, their framework for understanding what's possible for them. All of it had to go and be reimagined. And that's also true for us today. The resurrection of Jesus is either of no importance because it didn't happen, or it is of ultimate importance and it, is rel- it, it relates to every person's life. There is no in-between possible. These events are God's great victory. They reveal to us that these things that challenge us today, war, cancer, poverty, abuse, mental illness, fear and anxiety, depression, despair, dictatorships, viruses, and villains, they don't have the last word. So the question then is, what do we do with the news? This is true. If God's done this on our behalf, what do we do with it? Well, Let's take a leaf out of the book of some of those City fans. There were those who left the stadium early. And they have (laughs) regretted it ever since. There were those who left the bar early. My mother was among them. She couldn't handle the tension. There she is just over there. Couldn't handle the tension, so she did what any normal person would do. She excused herself and went prayer walking around the square. (laughs) You know, if you're (laughs) convinced that you've got life sorted, you've got the corner on it, you don't need help or assistance, you can do things on your own. If you're certain you can insulate yourself from suffering, death, pain, and uh, if you have enough meaning and purpose already, your cup runneth over. I probably don't have anything for you this morning. Maybe it's for you to leave the stadium, but... There are those of us who just want to stay and soak and celebrate. We want to join the party. And that's what I invite you to do this morning. If like me and many of us throughout human history, you recognize that you come to God with an empty tank, ready to be filled with a need in your heart that you have never been able to satisfy with a nagging sense of longing for more. It's to you who I speak, and I speak a word of invitation that God welcomes you. Not because you're good enough, because you're not, and you never will be. But he is good enough, and he welcomes you with open arms. And this news, if you understand it, will send you into a delirious haze, and you will kiss people you have never met before. And the best way to verify these claims, whether they're true or not, is to ask him. Because if Jesus lies dead in some tomb or his bones are buried in some place and we just haven't found them yet, then there's nothing really to say. But if he is raised from the dead, then he can speak today. A dead man cannot do that, but a living person can. And if he is the good God, Christians claim he is. He will do that. He will show up for you in your hour of need.
because he has paved the way for all of his creation, including you and I, to experience his presence in, through, and beyond every trial and temptation and suffering. He offers peace in abundance, hope without measure, joy eternal to those who know him and those who ask. And above all, he offers meaning. It is what he's given to me. He showed up for me in the darkest trial. He can do the same for you. And that's what it means to share in his victory today. But better still, this first Easter points toward the future day when he comes again and every tear will be wiped from every eye. Every wound will be healed. Every besieged, surrounded city will be rebuilt and every dictator will be judged. And that victory is better than that one by far, by leagues, than that one by Mancini's men. And every one of us will be included. And the man who won that victory was Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. And so together we say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You can do much, much, much better. He is risen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. Why don't I pray? Why don't I pray? And the band are going to join us as we're going to sing a song in response in just a moment. My children will join us momentarily as well as we move toward baptism. But I want to ask you if this morning you want to join in with the celebration. participate in the joy of the empty tomb. And maybe like the disciples, you're just honestly here in this place and you're a little bit quizzical, you're perplexed, you can't travel it. That's okay. Bring that to God. Ask him the question, God, is this you? If it is, speak to me. Do what C.S. Lewis did. Create a space, a moment for him to move. But if perhaps like Mary in that first reading that Amy read at the beginning of the service, you're hearing him call your name, I want to invite you to respond to that. I'm going to pray a simple prayer and just encourage you to echo these words in your heart. Father God, thank you for this message of new life. Thank you that a tomb was empty, and a man was raised to life. Thank you for what this means for me. I don't understand it fully, but I want to begin joining in today with the party in celebration. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your spirit. Join me to your people. Transform my heart, my life. Change my future. Lift my head. Give me hope.
Amen.